every act of any sort in law, governance, policymaking, teaching, speaking, and communicating in other ways has a moral dimension for individuals and the common good of society. How are issues in the pandemic being handled with so many moral and ethical concerns involved? I'm Sheila Lagminas. You're in the forum. Catholic social teaching has a lot to say about issues of bioethics and the rapid changes science and technology allow in the treatment of many biomedical issues. But what the church teaches about health and care involve both the body and the soul. Who's talking about that, especially during this global pandemic? My guest, for one, Bishop Thomas Paprocki is here, shepherd of the Diocese of Springfield, Illinois, and adjunct professor of law at Notre Dame Law School. Bishop Paprocki, it's so good to talk with you again. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Sheila. It's always good to be with you. Hello to you and your listeners. It's, and I know people are really grateful to hear your voice right now. Bishop, you have uh, an article in Ethics and Med- Medicine. It's not just an, an article, a commentary, but it's an essay, Social Shutdowns as an Extraordinary Means of saving human lives. For years, Bishop, I did a radio feature really on on looking very seriously at bioethical issues, and that just really runs the gamut from the beginning to the end of life and in between. But this is interesting, social shutdowns as an extraordinary means of saving human lives. You take a couple of pages of this to work your way into what your target point is in this, um, the social shutdowns being where you're aiming at this. But you take us through this, Bishop Paprocki, how you start out the essay with what the church teaches about extraordinary versus ordinary means of healthcare. Well, I started out uh, quoting from scripture from the book of Jeremiah, uh, where it says terror on every side. And that was the uh, the terror that uh, the people of Israel were facing in the, the reigns of Judah's uh, last kings. And so... Um, I, I mentioned that, how people were dealing with terror, and uh, we, we see actually throughout scripture and quite a bit uh, in the New Testament, we see the message, be not afraid, and uh, that's the message of the Archangel Gabriel to Mary at the Annunciation, and the message to, to Joseph to take the Holy Family to Egypt, be not afraid, um, and Jesus himself, I quoted here from the Gospel of Matthew, he says, be not afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather be afraid of the one who destroys both soul and the body in Gehenna. Now, Gehenna, of course, refers to hell. And so you have this reference here that Jesus is telling us to be not afraid of things that can, can harm the body, but we should, be, we should be afraid of the things that can cast us into hell. And so as I've been reflecting on what's been taking place in our country now for the, about the last seven months uh, or so, not, our, not just our country, but around the world with all the, you know, the shutdowns in light of the coronavirus and the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, we've, we've taken extraordinary steps of uh, telling people to stay home, don't go to work, don't go to school, uh, don't go to church. People have not, for a couple of months there, were not even able to receive Holy Communion. And the word that kept coming back to me uh, in terms of what we were doing was that it was truly extraordinary. Now, we, we took those steps and the church uh, cooperated very much as we wanted to be good citizens and we didn't know nobody knew at the beginning how serious this was so we wanted to be very cautious and we cooperated with it but looking back at this now I think we I 
want to raise the question about taking some action that's so extraordinary. And, and what came to mind was the teaching that we have in Catholic, Catholic medical ethics that I learned years ago when I was in the seminary and doing, doing my master's work in, uh, in theology. And uh, there was a, a very important distinction that Pope Pius XII made in 1957 in an address he gave to Catholic physicians and anesthesiologists. And he said, I'll just quote a little portion here. Normally one is held to use only ordinary means according to the circumstances of persons, places, times, and culture. That is to say means that do not involve any grave burden for oneself or another. A stricter obligation would be too burdensome for most men and would render the attainment of the higher, more important good too difficult. Life, health, all temporal activities are in fact subordinated to spiritual ends. So what he's saying are a couple of very important points. He's contrasting ordinary with extraordinary and the way to determine if something is extraordinary is if it's too burdensome. But the other factor he's putting in here is the, the priority of our, our values and that the spiritual ends, namely eternal life, is much higher than our temporal ends, even our, our physical life here on earth. And so as we apply that to the situation of our, our society, uh, my argument basically where I, I come down on the side of this argument is that yes, we should, we should always do the ordinary means to preserve life, but we don't have to take the extraordinary means. It's not a, it's not a burden. Uh, it is a burden that we should, we are not obliged to do. And then I, I give the analogy here of, uh, of traffic fatalities. And since 1951, over 35,000 people die every year in traffic accidents. And so if the burden is that, or the obligation morally is that we have to prevent every human life possibly from being lost, well, then we shouldn't even get in, into our cars. We shouldn't drive. We should close all our highways because that's the way we would save every life from tra traffic fat fatalities. But we don't do that. Why? Because that would be extraordinary. People have to get to work. They have to get to school. They have to get to church. And so we do the ordinary things. We use seatbelts. We use airbags, we follow the rules of the road, and life goes on. And so my argument would be that uh, I'm not just saying we should throw caution to the wind when it comes to uh, a contagious disease or a pandemic, but we should do those things that are uh, more in the ordinary realm of things like safe distancing and good hygiene, washing hands, uh, face masks, and, and things like that, that would be more ordinary. In the essay, you, you echo, or I'm echoing you when I say it, you echo what I say all the time. I don't like the term social distancing. And I smiled when I read that in your essay. You say, I do not like the term because social distancing uh, it seems to imply social isolation. But that that seems to be precisely what's happening in our society because people are becoming isolated from each other as they shrink in fear of human interaction. So you make that point, you make a very perfect pivot from what the church teaches in bioethics about extraordinary versus ordinary means in say they're in the hospital with, with different forms of treatment available. When can you or might you uh, decline that treatment or that treatment by a family member with power of attorney be, be withheld? And when must it be? given and so forth. You make that pivot from that and you teach in that. Even John Paul II himself, late in life, what he did in his own state as he was dying, you say he wasn't rushed to the hospital to be kept on life support um, indefinitely. Rather, the Holy Father, who was staunchly pro-life, was allowed to die peacefully 
and gave us a powerful example of how to die naturally. You, right about there and then right after that, quoting Evangelium Vitae, you make the perfect pivot into now implications for the pen during the pandemic and, and getting back to saying social distancing. So the measures we can and should and are taking, most of us are, are what I, what I would call, like you, spatial distancing. Now, that's just a space, right? The amount right. of space between our, among ourselves and in between ourselves to be safe. And, the, of course, the mask, number one, the spatial distancing, the disinfecting, hand sanitizing, and all of that, and, and so forth. However, apply this as you want to do, and I, as you wrote this to do, to taking that to the most extreme measures, whereas some things are deemed essential services and have since the earliest days of our state of Illinois lockdown. And now a lot of the country has been under that at some point in time. Some still are. And that meant essential services can really run the gamut. And I mean, my Bishop Rocky, I used to, my family would laugh at this, but I could get my dog groomed and couldn't get myself groomed. In other words, you can't right. get your, you couldn't get your hair cut, couldn't go to right. a barber or a hair shop, but I could take, take the dog to get groomed. So, and you can name any other number of things, but my church was locked. And so were all the other churches in my diocese for a long, long time. Therefore, you want people to have access to the sacraments. Archbishop Cordelione has lately gone out there to the letter of the law and tried to bring lawsuit to, to do that very thing when you even limit the people accessing the sacraments in an open setting outside, which is his case in California. That's what you want to aim at, doing all these social safety measures while not shutting down the economy, shutting down schools, keeping things shut down. You raise very special and tender personal stories of your, I believe it is your godmother turning 102 and other stories you tell, what this is yes. doing to people's lives and their souls. Yeah, so I, I tell the story of my Aunt Marion, who is uh, 102 years old, and I called her on her birthday on March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation. And uh, she, um, up until that point, she'd been very, very lucid and, and very sharp mentally, and it was, she was living in her own apartment in a, re a retirement community. So it was within an institutional setting, but she was in independent living. And so I called her that morning. This was right after the shutdowns had, had uh, started basically. And I, I could tell she was crying and I asked her what was wrong. I said, uh, why, why, why are you crying? She said, well, this is a very sad day. And I said, why is it sad? It's your, your birthday. And she said, well, my, my daughter and her husband and my great granddaughter came to see me but they wouldn't let them in, uh, and all they would, all I could do was wave at them through the through the glass. And I thought that you know that was really very sad. And that's to my the point that you, you mentioned earlier. I was talking about the social distancing. I don't like that term because I unfortunately I think that's what's happening in many cases. You know, I prefer safe distancing or physical distancing, or you know, to say that we should put some physical space between us. But on the other hand, social distancing is really more social isolation. And I think, unfortunately, that's what's been happening to my, my aunt. My, my cousin tells me that since then, um, my aunt has, has actually uh, gone downhill. She's now had to be moved to assisted living and uh, she's very confused. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't understand. I mean, she's lucid, but she doesn't understand why can't people come and visit me? Why can't I see my family? And so, I've said I'm, I'm more worried that she's going to die of a broken heart than to die of, uh, of COVID. And uh, you know, so that 
and, and I'm not the only one raising these concerns. You know, people talk about follow the science. Well, it depends which, which science you're, you're talking about. So the, of course, the epidemiologists are telling you what you have to do to, to prevent um, the spread of a contagious disease. On the other hand, if you talk to um, a, a geriatric physician, for example, a doctor that takes care of the elderly, uh, they would, would tell you exactly the kinds of things that my, my aunt is going through is that uh, it's also part of their health. They, they need interaction with people. And uh, uh, it's just sad. I was talking to a woman the other day whose husband is, has uh, Alzheimer's and uh, he's been in a nursing home for several months now. She said, I have not been able to touch my husband for the last six months. Oh and gosh. I just think how, how sad that is. So, you know, follow the science, but there are a lot of different sciences. Also, you know, talking to um, uh, pediatricians and child psychologists. Uh, they've been saying for some time that our children should be back in school and our, our Catholic schools are back in session and um, hearing from parents and teachers and even even the children. I never thought I'd hear young students saying how happy they are to be back in school, but they need that because, you know, perhaps uh, someone in college or graduate school can, uh, they can do their education online and listen to lectures, but little children aren't going to just sit in front of a computer and listen to a lecture all day. Uh, plus a big part of their education is uh, the social interaction with their peers, their classmates, their teachers. And so there, it, it's just a very uh, complicated uh, situation. And unfortunately, I think uh, too many are just uh, falling for very simplistic solutions here. Well, and, and a lot of people agree with you. I see it on the different news shows I watch, and I watch some through a business network because I, I, I like those Bishop Paprocki, because when I do, I find that you, you, I get the news and I get it well covered, but through the prism of how it's impacting people and affecting people. I mean, what's, what is commerce other than a word for people buying and selling? So when I hear news on a business network, one of the ones I, I find to have integrity and good reporting, then you get that news and you also get how it's impacting people. So when, when in your essay, you write about shutting down our society, requiring, do you, you ask this question rhetorically in the face of a pandemic, do we have a moral obligation to shut down our society, require people to stay home, put employees out of work, send businesses into bankruptcy, impair the food supply chain? I hear about with the food supply chain and truckers and farmers and I mean, just the impact on people. And then you, you conclude that and prevent worshipers from going to church. You add Bishop Apraki, I would say no. That, that would be imposing unduly burdensome and extraordinary means. That's the extraordinary means. And uh, are we morally required to do that to preserve life on both the parts of the individuals as well as society? We need to, to take the social uh, measures, as you say, and medical measures. But you, it's, it's a case, it seems, to, that you're making, and especially this far down the road for in the pandemic, that we can do both. You even say... So as we look at what we have done and look forward to consider how we will respond in the future, if there should be a second wave of COVID-19 or if some other novel uh, virus would sweep the world, I think it would be helpful to call to mind, that's why we're having this conversation, you wrote what you wrote, some Catholic moral principles to help illuminate how to address a pandemic. To those points about shutting down the economy and as you just said, this, this and then jobs and all those jobs down the, the line. And then the schools and the children and the impact there. People have different opinions on that, as we know well, and they argue a lot. But, but even you, you cite a teacher who says, well, 
if we open the schools, I mean, children don't get this very much, but even a few could get it. And if they did, people could die. Bishop Apraki, what was your answer to that? Well, people could die. That's uh, any situation in life. There's a risk when you walk outside your door. So people could die, uh, you know, if, if the thinking is the safest thing for me to do is never to go out my door and just stay at home and stay in bed all day. Well, actually, that's a, a morbidity factor as well, because inactivity could lead to obesity and heart disease. And so, you know, there's, there's risks on almost anything you do in life. So the point here is that, you know, we take risks in life. Uh, life is, is it's, got, it's inherently uh, got its, its hazards. And so the question is, how do we live our normal lives uh, taking ordinary means to to protect them, uh, and in this regard, I'm not I'm not questioning the good intentions of our government officials who are ordering these shutdowns. You know, I think they have the good intention is to want to save life, and that's admirable. On the other hand, I, I'm, what I'm trying to point out here is uh, citing some of these principles of uh, moral theology and medical ethics is that uh, there are distinctions that, that have to be made in terms of what is required to do. What are we required to do and what, uh, what are things that are extraordinary and are unduly burdensome that we're not required to do. So if, if, the, if you know, the, the principle is that law follows theology or when it comes to civil law, law follows moral principles. People have the sense. So the, the, the good moral principle is for, uh, for a governor to say, I wanna protect life. And so I'm gonna take these steps. But there's also almost an implication that I have to do this. If I don't do this, I'm, I'm going to be a bad governor. I'm, I'm going to I'm risking people's lives. And what I'm pointing, trying to point out is uh, to make this distinction between ordinary and extraordinary means that our government officials, they should be taking the necessary steps to preserve life, but they should be uh, what steps that are not unduly burdensome to the normal functioning of our society. We can't do this every time there's uh, a, a serious uh, flu that goes through our, our society. We can't shut everything down because the, there are other consequences as well. So you might prevent the spread of a contagious disease, but how about the people that are then out of work and they can't pay their rent and they can't buy food. And so you have people dealing with, with uh, trying to support their families and starvation and, and suicides. There's, uh, you know, mental health experts are talking about uh, the, the negative repercussions of what's going on here too. So again, this is there, there are a lot of factors to be uh, considered here and not just a, a simple solution, let's lock everything down. And you make the point, Bishop Paprocki, that we, we really do, as we try to cope with this as best we can under these circumstances in this year of the pandemic, it's crucial that we not forget the role our faith can and must have in the midst of this crisis. Now, yes, while we rightfully, you say, um, focus our attention on the advice of healthcare experts and the decisions government officials must make to protect public health and safety. You add, before you end that sentence, we must at the same time keep God front and center in our awareness and maintain a vigorous life of prayer, trusting in God's providence to deliver us from evil and affliction. Talk about that in the an anecdotal story you tell of, of the man who you ordained a man's son to the priesthood, but ahead of that ordination, it was going to be the case, as I understand it, that his, his um, how old, 92-year-old father of the 63-year-old man, must have been a late vocation, right, yes. was not going to be able to be present for that. Was that the case? Yes, exactly. So we were very blessed this year with, with uh, eight new priests that I ordained. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's the most number we've had actually since 1964. So it was oh, a great wow. blessing. And one of them was uh, a later vocation. So a 63 year old man whose father was 92. And at the time we were talking about this, uh, his, the plan was that uh, they were concerned about uh, the, their father's health. And so they said, well, but maybe it's better, be better if he would just live stream, he would watch the live stream video of the ordination. And then uh, Father David's first mass uh, was gonna be at the cathedral at 10 o'clock on, well, normally I was taking the 10 o'clock mass at the cathedral on Sunday, cause that was live streamed. He asked if he could take it so that his father could watch the mass live streamed. And I said, sure, that'd be fine. But then as it turned out, his father came in person to both the ordination and the first mass. Mm -hmm. And he has explained it, That's as great. he explained it, he said, I'm 92 years old. He said, I've had a good life. And if it's the last thing I do, I want to see my son ordained a priest and be at his first mass. Mm -hmm. And I thought how, how wonderful that was that, you know, he, I think had a, a, a great sense of his priorities that again, the spiritual uh, goals are, are more important than the physical. In fact, I'm hearing from many of the priests in my diocese that even though we still have the dispensation in place uh, for the dispensation from the obligation to attend mass on Sundays, it's the older people that are coming to church. Mm -hmm. And you would think, well, they're in the higher risk group. They, they should stay home. And, uh, and yet it's, it's the opposite. The younger people seem to be the ones staying home and the older folks are coming to church and we're ask, asking them, well, why? You know, you don't have to come for your, to protect your health that you, you could stay home and watch the live stream mass. But they, their response is, well, the live stream mass uh, is not the real thing. I want to be there in church. Uh, moreover, in a live stream mass, I can't receive communion. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of them are saying, you know, if, if I am at the end of my life uh, or near the end of my life, I want the sacraments and I need the sacraments. I want to die in the state of grace. I don't want to stay, stay at home because I'm afraid of catching a disease. And so, again, I think they have the right priority that they realize that the spiritual ends, the spiritual uh, objectives here are more important than, than even our physical lives. And, and, and coming right, and by the way, the point you just made, the, finally, when my church was uh, unlocked and they started holding, for, I, th I believe first you, you could get into confession, which I desperately wanted to do. That's something when you make that one, uh, a regular part of your spiritual life, you miss it so terribly, you want it so badly, you want the Eucharist again, you want to be able to slip into a pew and pray. Well, that's not possible any time of any day to just slip into my church and pray. There are times you can come in, there are two times a week for the confession. For, for confession and then the masses that are scheduled. But Bishop Paprocki, when they finally started masses again, of course, you have to register online and they have to keep track of who, how many have registered and sign and ch check off your name at the door and all that. I understand that. But what to your point you just made, I've noticed that myself. And when you, you said it just now, I was sitting here thinking, uh-huh, that's exactly what I see. So the mass I go to each weekend now, I look around and I see this is really remarkable for the number allowed to be in my rather large church, but it's the capacity a number because only every so many pews can even be used. And then so much space has to be kept between families or couples or individuals. You have to, of course, have a mask on when you walk in. And then, you know, most people tend to swipe their hand under the sanitizer and do that. And then you get seated, you know, spatially distanced. And everything is done in such a way that I feel outside of my own home safer in my parish than anywhere else I go. And I, I, I've looked around before and thought, this is interesting. Most, not all, most of the people here are of the older generation, 
um, there are some families and there are maybe some, I don't know, middle-aged, but there aren't young, maybe they're at different masses over the weekend. And then I also noticed, Bishop Abraki, that the volunteers doing some of the, 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 the ushering people to their seats and, you know, hand sanitizing right before communion and so on. The, the volunteers at my parish are older people as well. So, you know, it's to your point, they're saying, I, I really want to be there for the Eucharist. I want to be in my church again. And it's interesting that young people are, what, taking the dispensation and watching it on live stream? Uh, yes, that seems, uh, seems to be the case, that that's uh, what's happening here. But as you, you mentioned, uh, you know, our churches being very safe places, and I think that it, that's true. And so are our schools, because we're taking uh, mm -hmm. these measures of, uh, in most of our churches, for example, we have every other uh, pew roped off so that people will not be sitting together unless they're with their own members of their own household, they're living together so they can sit together in church. Uh, but there, our, our environment, I think we're taking all these safety precautions. And so it's, uh, it's, it's puzzling why uh, churches are still a target in some places. In, in uh, Brooklyn, for example, uh, New York, the governor there has ma made some, uh, reimposed more restrictions on churches and uh, houses of worship. And the Orthodox Jewish community there is very, very upset. And they have some lawsuits pending because in the, in the Jewish tradition, you need you need 10 men to form a minion or what, you, what we would consider to be like a quorum. You need a minimum of 10. And if they have a, some parts of Brooklyn, there's a, a maximum of 10 people. And they're saying, well, how, we, wow. we're having trouble even getting a minion together to have prayer. Uh, Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio has filed a lawsuit on, the behalf, on behalf of the Diocese of Brooklyn, uh, making that same point. He says he doesn't understand why, because our churches have been taking these precautions and we have not had any reported cases of, of people seeming to have uh, contracted uh, COVID by going to church. And yet, uh, and yet the restriction is very, uh, very uh, tight. And unfortunately, a federal district court turned down a request for an injunction. And uh, we've been seeing across the country, and I, I refer to a couple of cases in my essay about some court cases. And unfortunately, right now there's, there's mixed, uh, decisions coming out. So mm -hmm. the, governor's, uh, the governor's orders in Wisconsin, Kentucky, and Michigan were struck down by courts. On the other hand, the, the U.S. Supreme Court um, refused to strike down California's uh, restriction of 25% capacity. Uh, and you see inconsistencies even in what the government, governments are doing. So in Nevada, for example, you can go to a casino. It's easier to go to a casino than it is to go to church. Mm. And so um, just raises all kinds of legal questions about the equal protection of the laws. And at, at some point, uh, I would think this is going to have to get resolved by the United States Supreme Court. But uh, those cases, by the time they work their way through the courts, usually take several years. So it could be a while mm -hmm. before we, we get a final answer on some of these legal matters. Well, Bishop Aparki, on law, and, I, and being a professor of law at Notre Dame Law School, uh, you're so good on this. You write in your essay that civil, civil law should be based on and flow from natural law. This is under this section, to your point a little while ago, when you said that law the law follows theology. Civil law, you write, should be based on and flow from natural law, which is the innate sense of right and wrong written into our hearts 
by God and which can be discerned through the use of right reason. So therefore, civil law flows from ethics. Not all moral values need be legislated or coerced, of course, as legally binding, but laws are normally enacted because they flow from ethical principles that are recognized and accepted by the community as being necessary to protect the common good. The times in which we're living right now, I mean, one wants to see that applied. But, but when, when you, then you go from there into the 1983 Code of Canon Law. This is really important. And you cite that saying, the salvation of souls is the supreme law. Physical health is important, but the highest, this is your words now, physical health is important, but the highest good is eternal life. We do well to remember these basic teachings of Catholic moral theology. And so applying that, Bishop Apraki, to what you just noted, rightly so, we have a patchwork of laws across the country on whether you can or can't get into your place of worship, your church, uh, your community of faith. Um, how, you saw it important to to write this commentary, to write this essay. I know it's getting attention. What do you, do you think this is all being politicized, or do you think it's just a scramble and of different governors and other other public officials trying to literally apply what scientists and medical health experts say? So between those two, both and politicized, but also not knowing what to do. Uh, yes, I mean, I've heard some commentators say that uh, it's unfortunate that this uh, pandemic has come during an election year because uh, it, it has become politicized in terms of uh, uh, governors and uh, others accusing the president and is going back and forth of who's responsible for this. And it'll, it will be interesting to see what happens after the election if, uh, if the conversation uh, becomes more civil or more reasonable about this. But in terms of what uh, our rights are, for example, our, our rights under our constitution, the right uh, that we have in the First Amendment for the free exercise of religion, we have a long tradition in our country going back to the Declaration of Independence so that these rights come from God. You know, it's in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in fact, there was even some debate when the constitution was first uh, adopted that there was no bill of rights. It's uh, interesting that uh, our rights, our bill of rights were the first 10 amendments. They were amendments. They were not in the first constitution precisely because there were those who argued that these rights do not come from the government. They come from God. And that's an important thing to keep in mind here. Our right to the free exercise of religion comes from God. Now, uh, governors, for example, have uh, do have powers and they should be concerned for the common good to take emergency uh, actions uh, when they're faced with a crisis. But that can't be ongoing. You can't have a governor unilaterally saying, I'm suspending the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. I'm not going to let people go to church. And so that, that's why uh, eventually I think these these questions have to be resolved, but remembering that uh, these are the right to uh, the free exercise of religion is not a gift from our government. It is a right. And, and in fact, it's an obligation from God uh, that we have to uh, we have to protect. 
Just like conscience predates the state, it does not come from the state. It's conferred by God, and the state does not have the right to take that away. Bishop Aparaki, one last question, and then I, I can, I'll let you go. But I'm really eager to hear your thoughts on this, and so are listeners. As we talk about God and uh, the, the, these, this, the civil laws of government, and you just brought up, you know, with the elections and afterwards, maybe we can be more civil. One can only pray for that. But, um, but, but with the elections coming up, we have a lot of, well, a lot of confused citizens across America, but a lot of them are Catholic. And they're seeing one of the two presidential candidates is Vice President Joe Biden, who's particularly right now, of course, all candidates for the highest offices target all the, the different uh, identity groups. They want, you know, they want the Hispanic vote, the, the, the black vote, the woman vote, the Catholic, well, now this year more than usual, the Catholic vote. And, and, and Vice President Biden has targeted Catholic uh, voters out there to talk about how his faith matters to him without mentioning abortion or the Hyde Amendment, of course. And people get confused when they hear these things. Other members of government in high places in Congress on one side or the other, House or, or Senate, and uh, in, uh, in other parts of uh, the, the highest parts of the land of our governing are Catholic, and yet they do not uphold publicly in policy and laws, the teachings of the Catholic faith, and very clear and very um, forceful, if you will, teachings of the Catholic faith when, you're, when the Catholic Church uses terms, Bishop Rocky, like the intrinsic evil of abortion. You don't get bolder than that because everything else depends on having life, or you can't make a coherent argument for any right if you can't uphold the right to life. So for the confused voters out there, lamentably, Bishop Rocky, Catholics do fall almost 50-50, left and right, Democrat, Republican. But what about the, what, the, what the bishops teach in forming consciences for faithful citizenship is when you go into the polling place or cast your vote and you're considering the candidates, the platform, their policies, their promises in their campaigns, and you find you might want this candidate for this office, but they hold a very problematic amount of support for abortion on demand. Well, yes, the bishops of the United States, uh, uh, our document called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. And uh, we wrote, uh, this is a document we've been using for a number of years now because it it does cover things pretty thoroughly. But we do a new introductory letter uh, every four years before a new new general election. And so the introductory letter that we adopted last November uh, at our general meeting says that the threat of abortion remains our preeminent priority because it directly attacks life itself, because it takes place within the sanctuary of the family, and because of the number of lives destroyed. Now, I wrote uh, my column in our diocesan uh, magazine, Catholic Times, on September 20th about this, and I, I pointed out the position of the two major parties, uh, the, Re- the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and then the candidates uh, for president and vice president uh, of the United States and our senator here in Illinois, where they stand on these issues with regard uh, to the preeminent priority. And so um, I've had uh, some follow-up questions for that because, as you said, uh, Joe Biden uh, and Kamala Harris have been very stridently pro, uh, pro-abortion, pro whereas uh, uh, Trump and Pence have uh, been pro-life. They say, well, they've asked me, is it a sin to vote for, for Joe Biden? And I just wrote um, another column on that. That'll be in this coming weekend's edition of our Catholic Times, which people can get, by the way, at our website, which is www.dio.org. But in in this coming issue, I I write about uh, the distinction. um, Well, basically, 
when you are voting for someone who is promoting an intrinsic evil like abortion, you are uh, cooperating with evil. And uh, then I get into an analysis of the different levels of cooperation. Formal cooperation means you share that person's intent. So if you ever voted for someone saying, I intend uh, to support abortion, that's always a sin. Material cooperation, on the other hand, you don't necessarily have the intent, but you are cooperating in an essential way uh, to the wrongdoing. And if a person who is uh, a material cooperator, uh, there are since, uh, there are since, uh, instances in life where we do cooperate with evil because evil is all around us. Uh, but we have to have a proportionately grave reason. And that's, that's where the, the problem is. Because some people would argue, for example, well, all right, I, I'm opposed to the death penalty. So isn't that a proportionate reason to being opposed to abortion? Because some candidates may be opposed to abortion, but in favor of the death penalty and vice versa. My answer to that is, well, first of all, abortion and the death penalty are not in the same moral category. Uh, abortion is a, an intrinsic evil, whereas the death penalty has been called inadmissible by Pope Francis, which is not the same thing as calling it intrinsic evil. That's more of a prudential judgment about its efficacy. But then I also point out there's a problem uh, with trying to make a, a numerical equivalency. The numbers don't add up. There are over 860,000 abortions that took place in our country in the last reported year. Meanwhile, there were 22 executions of prisoners in seven states in 2019, and there were zero executions here in Illinois. So if you're just weighing the numbers, the, the, the problem of uh, abortion, just numerically, is, is almost a million abortions taking place every year with, with less than two dozen executions taking place. So there's, there's not even a proportional comparison there. Absolutely. I mean, that's a staggering difference. It, it's it, it, the act is one thing. The numbers being so staggering, I mean, are are very sobering indeed, and really should uh, cause those making such an argument to reconsider or to you what they should be at least engaged in a, a dialogue. You know, the Socratic reasoning, the great Catholic intellectual tradition of having that debate, that argument, that in the art of the argument, not a hostile argument, uh, or a, a conversation, Bishop. Rocky, those need to be taking place across our country, but a lot of people are divided within their own families over politics these days, and that's really that's really hard for people. We need to behave more civilly, and as disciples of Christ, and you and the other body of the rest, the whole body of bishops have worked very hard to help us form our consciences for faithful citizenship. Bishop Paprocki, thank you for being here. Thank you for your essay. It's so good. Bishop Paprocki, Bishop Thomas Paprocki, Bishop of Springfield, Illinois adjunct professor of law at Notre Dame University Law School and vice president of the Illinois Catholic Health Association. You bring all that together. And at a time like this with God and government and the common good and healthcare and worship and in church and the sacraments, it all comes together in a way you teach very well, Bishop Aprocki. So thank you for this conversation to clarify it. You're welcome and God bless you and all of your listeners. That's all for now. It's great to spend time with you. Thanks for tuning in. I ask you to share the link and invite others to join us here in the forum.